Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about a campaign that I'm hoping you'll follow. Here at Thousand Movie Project, we're all about films from the past. We're also about new movies from the past, and future movies about the past too, and past movies about the future. Anything, frankly, that distracts me from the pinwheeling shitshow fucking pandemic. What I want to point you toward today is an outfit called Alex Filmworks. That's A-L-I-X Filmworks. Filmworks with an X. It's an Instagram profile where you'll find a pair of filmmakers who just launched a campaign to raise money for their new movie. The movie is called Dead in the Water, and it concerns a man in Florida history who ate a mushroom and went looking for the fountain of youth. There's a zombie in it. What I would like, frankly, is for this movie to get off the ground. These filmmakers have been behind-the-scenes supporters of Thousand Movie Project podcast for a long time, and I honestly, literally, professionally, cannot tell you about the lengths that they've gone to support this podcast. So please, if you if you can't fork over at least a few bucks to crowdfund them on seedandspark.com, where you can search Dead in the Water, I ask that you please, please go and follow them on Instagram. Once again, their label is Alex, A-L-I-X, Filmworks, Filmworks with an X, and their campaign is on seedandspark.com, that's seedandspark.com, and once you get to seedandspark.com, you can search the name Dead in the Water. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. Listening, for the first time in a while, to an episode where I'm speaking with a guest. Her name is Blair Casuto. Blair's podcast is called The Blair List. It's a side project that she does in the evenings after working full-time as a social media coordinator for Grey Goose. And if you were to categorize her show in terms of genre, you'd probably say that it's a business podcast with an occasional artist. And one of the reasons it's really caught my attention lately is because she talks in her podcast very much about work and career and ambition and sacrifice and all that stuff. And now, suddenly, as I come up on the brink of my 30th birthday, I'm not sure how I feel anymore about the sort of like breakneck ambition that I've always found so titillating. Let me also say that one of the weird things about having my 30th birthday so close on the horizon is that everything I think about, every idea I have, everything I stress about, every food that I crave, all of it seems to exist in the shadow of that birthday, seems to be born from that impending birthday. Every time I'm lost in thought or I seem conflicted about something, if someone asks me what the issue is, I find myself saying, I don't know, it's just that now that I'm turning 30... I attribute everything that's going on now to the fact that I'm turning 30. The most inconsequential things. Now that I'm turning 30, I've been eating lots of bread. By the way, all right, I, I wrote that bread thing on the fly as a joke, but the recent bread consumption in my life is starting to worry me. Because, as you might recall from the past three episodes, I work at a pizza place now. And I also recently, like, I went on a date with someone who reminded me of how much I love non, non-bread. She came over to my apartment and she was like, hey, I'm hungry, can we order something? And I didn't I didn't really have food, for one thing. But I also don't like eating full meals on a date when it seems like maybe sex is on the table because I'm afraid I'll have to poop after the meal. So I was like, I don't know about a restaurant. I'm not really that hungry. And she was like, no, I'm not that hungry either. And so I said, well, how about we just order some like snack things from Instacart? 
And so I downloaded the Instacart app, and um, we're roaming through the options, and I see non is listed there at the top as like one of the most popular things in my area. And I was like, whoa, I haven't had non in a really long time. But I used to eat a fuckload of non. When I was a freshman in college, I was walking through the bread aisle at Publix one day, and I saw non for the first time, and I touched it, and I was like, I don't know what this is, but I would like to sleep on it. So I bought like four bags of non, went home, ate the whole fucking thing, but but somehow non over the years kind of fell out of like my culinary repertoire, which happens a lot with beers and certain kinds of cocktails. Maybe you've experienced that too. Like there will be a beer or a cocktail that you drink every time you go out. It is your drink. And you'll you'll have two or three of them with a meal. And like you binge that shit for years and years and then one day you never want to drink it again. I don't think that's what happened with not anyways okay this is this woman's over at my apartment she wanted something to snack on but wasn't really giving pointers so i just bought a bunch of naan so the order shows up at my door i open it i toss that naan in the toaster oven for like 30 seconds dude it was like a religious experience and maybe this is another thing about turning 30 but the pleasure of eating that naan eclipsed my excitement about sex like naan and sex is a good night but I don't think you need the second part. Anyway, Naan is back in my life now, and I think it's here to stay. I'm not a big breakfast person, but every morning now on my way out the door, I heat up a little discus-like piece of Naan, and I scoop a cartoonish amount of hummus onto it, and then I'm out the door. And once I'm out the door, I go to work, and all through the workday, I go to the expo line, and I steal these little wedges of focaccia bread. Focaccia bread, if you've never had it, is one of the better breads. I've never been alone in a room with a baker before, but if anyone ever said to me, hey, Alex, has a baker ever made slow, tender love to you? I would say yes, because I have eaten focaccia bread. On top of the fact that I'm eating focaccia bread all day, at the end of my shift, and this blows my fucking mind, if I'm closing the restaurant at around 10.30, I go to those heated shelves in the corner where we keep where we keep all of our to-go orders warm until the person comes to pick them up, and I take inventory of, like, the five pizzas that people ordered and just didn't pick up. And we, uh, the people, we, the employees, we can just take them home. And so I take them home. So I'm eating naan in the morning, focaccia bread all day, and then at night I eat pizza. And something popped up on my Instagram feed the other day where, like, a very fit woman was wearing boxing gloves and talking angrily about carbohydrates. Talking like carbohydrates had keyed her car. And she's talking about all the sugar that they have and, and how it makes you fat and sluggish. And she says, like, our bodies are only made to handle so much bread, to process so much bread um, in a given day, or else you get diabetes. And after she said that, the video went dark. And it does the thing where it invites you to, like, click on this video uh, to watch beyond the 15 second sample so you can watch the rest of it. Click to see if you might be at risk for diabetes. But I didn't click the video. Because look, I don't know how much bread she's about to tell me is too much bread. But I'm willing to bet that I'm eating 7 to 12 times as much bread as she's gonna tell me I should be eating. And there's so much diabetes in my family. Pretty much all of the men over 40 on both sides of my family have diabetes. So obviously I've got to be careful. Why am I talking about this? <laughs> Okay, so here's my plan. I'm gonna go to Rome, and I'm gonna meet someone, and we're gonna like hit it off really well, and I'm we're gonna have a kid, and I'm gonna name the kid Returnicus, kind of like a Roman emperor kind of name, and then for the rest of the kid's life, whenever they walk into a room where I am, I'm gonna look up slowly from my book, and I'm gonna be like, Returnicus, you've come back.
Okay, the reason I brought that up is because my guest, Blair Casuto, is an entrepreneur, and she works really hard, and, and I love consuming her content, but I also love... It, it remind, it, it, her, her work is in the same vein as Gary Vaynerchuk, and I used to love consuming Gary Vaynerchuk's content. I don't know if you know who he is. He's basically a motivational speaker, but he also owns an advertising agency in New York. He does lots of speaking gigs, and he's he's one of the few people who's got a daily podcast, and he's a, he's a legitimately in, inspirational guy. Also, he is an avowed and unapologetic workaholic. But for the past year and change, I haven't really listened to any of Gary V's content because it rubs me the wrong way lately, but I did actually listen to one recent episode, one, and it turned me off so hard. This particular episode, this recent episode of the Gary V podcast was an audio, audio thing that was torn from an interview that he gave to some English bro dude who's making his living by peddling the pornography of self-improvement to aimless young men. This guy is unbearable, and he talks about, like, his rigorous meditation routine and his magical weirdo diet. I only eat carrots, because carrots, people don't know this, but carrots are full of micro B12 amino acid fats. They're full of protein, also spirits. Carrots are the most haunted vegetable. But my mum's go garden, right, she grows veggies, and one day she calls me, she says, son, I'm hearing ghosts, ghosts at night chains and whatnot. I said to him, Mum, have you spoken to the carrots? It's all bullshit. He's one of these people who wants to, not Gary Vee, but th this, this English dude, you can tell he wants to be a life coach, a leader, a sort of guru, communicator, except that he doesn't have anything to say. Like at one point in the conversation, he's doing he's doing his shtick where he piles abstractions atop abstractions and he calls it wisdom. And at one point while flating himself, he goes, and I was meditating and thinking about what we do, Gary, you and I, uh, what we do in business and how it helps the world. And I thought, was Buddha an entrepreneur? I think he was. Jesus Christ too. All these great figures of, of unity and of spirituality, they, they, were, they were really entrepreneurs. And I was like, stop making noise with your mouth. Was Buddha an entrepreneur? No. <laughs> Nor was Jesus Christ. The only thing Jeff Bezos and Jesus have in common is that they're bipeds. And I know he's not speaking literally, but this is part of the infuriating mind game chicanery of those like male self-betterment gurus. What these guys do is they say something incredibly vague. They say something fascinatingly bizarre like, I think Jesus was an entrepreneur, which makes as much sense as saying that Jesus was a glass of milk, so that you keep listening so as to hopefully better understand what they mean by it. And that's all they want you to do is to keep listening. They want you to say, elaborate on that, so that they can enact some kind of rhetorical karate to make Jesus of Nazareth, the guy who famously like raised a man from the dead and then was tortured and crucified in the desert and then got resurrected to save mankind. He's trying to make that guy sound like he sold Herbalife. And if you were to say to him, my friend, I don't think Jesus Christ was a businessman, he would say to you, well, no, not exactly, but think about it. And then he would elaborate with this rhetorical karate, the implicit message being, that he doesn't think that you're actually thinking about it. And he knows that you, as an insecure young man, don't fancy yourself a particularly critical thinker. He knows that when he says to his audience of insecure young men, but when you really think about it, that those insecure young men who were probably told by, you know, that they were stupid by a long succession of teachers, those young men are gonna, are gonna flagellate themselves for being narrow-minded, and then they're gonna bow even, like, lower to the ground before this guru's guidance. But aside from that obvious ugliness, just consider the chutzpah of somebody who makes a weird statement, it makes no sense at all, and then they just tell you, think about it. <laughs> and then they walk away. That's not communication. These men sell themselves as communicators, but we should all bear in mind 
Good communicators do not confuse you. They do not titillate you. If you were in a relationship, for instance, and you had a partner who communicated that way, where you asked them why they won't have sex with you anymore, and they go, I think Jesus was an entrepreneur, you would leave that person because that's not communication. An example of a great communicator is someone like Anthony Fauci, someone who has people's lives hanging on his words. So what does he do? He speaks in one or two minute sound bites using plain language and he avoids metaphor. Anyway, I'm sorry, that was a tangent. The thing I was saying is that Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast sometimes rubs me the wrong way now. And and partly the reason it's begun, it's begun to rub me the wrong way is because I've been working in hospitality. Not only that, I'm, I'm feeling weirdly conflicted about the fact that I so enjoy working in hospitality. Okay, in order to make this point, I'm going to say something real quick about that Netflix show, Queen's Gambit. So I watched that that show, Queen's Gambit, on Netflix a couple months ago about the the chess prodigy who ends the Cold War by beating Drago, and I liked it fine. I, I wasn't really over the moon about it, but one of the impressions that stayed with me about Queen's Gambit, what it seemed to me to be about is turning 30. (laughs) Let me explain. So pretty much all of the show's leading actors um, are roughly 30, like late 20s, early 30s. But because the narrative spans a couple decades, we meet most of these characters when they're like 15 or 16. Like they're youngified, they're youthified with makeup. We meet them when they're young, in other words, and they have lofty ideas of their future. And then it carries us up into their late 20s, early 30s. What the show then depicts as the years go by is that pretty much nobody, except for Beth, our protagonist, goes on in life to fulfill the idea that they'd had of themselves when they were young. And yet, that being said, none of them turn out unhappy. For instance, there's this one putz of a character, the one I related to most. He starts off as a chess prodigy, very braggadocious when he's like 16. Then he gets he gets bested by Beth Harmon as a teenager, and it kind of humbles him a little bit, and he grows into a humbler, more approachable man. And when he reconnects with her years later, he's still a huge nut about chess, but he's no longer an avid competitor. He's more interested in her career because he has come to realize at the age of 28 or 30 that, that yes, he is very good, but that she, Beth Harmon, just has in her the innate talent for chess, the genius for chess. And this happens in all arenas of, of competitive sport. I don't know if chess is a sport. There, there is a level of genius performance that no amount of practice or sacrifice or study will ever you know, bring an average person up to. So what this putsy dude has, has, has achieved is self-awareness, an awareness of his limitations. And so he loans her some books and then they have awkward sex and then he leaves, which incidentally is like the blueprint of like 80% of my sex life. But anyway, a bit later we see our hero cross paths with that bookish dude again. And uh, the one she had sex with, the one I'm talking about. That guy The guy who was a chess prodigy, but who ultimately realized he didn't have what it takes to become a grandmaster, and so he threw in the towel. They cross paths in a parking lot, and they start trading barbed remarks to one another, and when finally she lashes out at him and tells him that he's a loser now because, you know, he gave up chess and he's working at a grocery store. He works at a grocery store, by the way. The dude just, he takes that venomous remark, and he just nods, and he shrugs, and he says, yeah, I'm a manager at a grocery store. It's not special, but the people are nice, and I like it. Which, if you've been listening to my ongoing pizza story series about my having very conflicted feelings with regard to, like, working at a pizza parlor and really, really liking the fact that I work at a pizza... I don't like the fact that I work at a pizza parlor, I just have fun while I'm there. You will understand how this part of the show really rang my bell. This is what I think that so many people my age are experiencing on and around the cusp of turning 30. They're kind of like, they're reaching this point where they are relinquishing the lofty ambitions that they fostered as teenagers. I think that part of this reconciliation comes from realizing, after 30 years on Earth, 
that life is just hard. <laughs> it's so fucking difficult. Everybody's got troubles about money and family and health, God forbid, that as you get a little older, you realize, like, let's take my situation, for example, serving pizzas and cocktails at the age of 30. If I got a time machine and I sat across from my 16-year-old self and said to him that this is what I would be doing at 30, he would have had to lay down for like a week. But now, at the age of 30, I'm more mindful of the fact that, you know, life is really hard. And it actually means something for most people. It actually eases their life. If they can add to their pile of emotional comfort blankets the idea that, you know, they're having a bad day, so, oh, hey, let me go to that pizza place in the Gables, have a beer, and chat with that 30-year-old bartender who keeps telling me horrific stories that he read on the internet. And I know I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but I really do think that I had to live for 30 years in order to understand what my 16-year-old self could not have understood as he was mapping out what his life would be, you know, from, from, from the from the vantage of like a protective bubble in South Miami. What what my 16-year-old self, what my very ambitious 16-year-old self could never have fathomed is that the hardworking bartender, the friendly cashier, the person answering the phone at, at the bank who exercises extreme patience in helping you through your financial glitch, those job, the people in those jobs, the people with those titles, if they carry out their responsibilities dutifully and with kindness, then those people have the capacity to dramatically influence the quality of your life. Consider the frequency with which some service worker has gone just a little bit beyond the, the call of duty, and it really helped you out. Uh, helped you out so much that you wanted to bring them pasta or something, like a creditor who waived an extra charge that would have meant you couldn't get groceries that week or couldn't, go, couldn't buy a, a, a birthday gift for your significant other. What I'm thinking at 30 is that the best thing a person can do is just go around this earth being helpful and kind, contributing as best they can to our collective effort of just getting by. And while I maintain this humble ideology, you know, passionately and with all my heart, I also kind of want to be rich and for a lot of people to like me. <laughs> and this is what interests me about Blair Casuda's podcast, The Blair List, is that she's in my age range, she's ambitious, she's speaking to ambitious people in roughly our age group around Miami, and I think I'm hearing tones of that vibe among her guests, not of resignation to their situation, but an appreciation of how much good they can do in their less-than-glamorous role. So to talk now about her show and about ambition and about being 30, among other things, I sat down with the host of the Blair List podcast, the social media director for Grey Goose Vodka, Blair Casuto. I'm really excited. This is my first podcast that I've been on since I launched my podcast. Really, I, I, one would not get that, that impression because you're so comfortable. And I've noticed, how many episodes have you had now? <laughs> I just dropped the seventh episode today. But so I was listening to an interview with Clive Barker, and he's the guy who made Hellraiser. And he does everything. He artistic. He writes. He paints. He makes movies. And he's great. But he was saying in this interview, he's now in his 60s, um, that his being so diversified in his artistic pursuits is kind of like a recipe for failure in some respects because it means he's never going to reach his full potential in any given field, like any, any of those crafts. And I'm wondering, you are clearly very diversified. You do social media, you do podcasting, you do writing. And I'm wondering if it wasn't required of you that you do all this kind of the, the whole scope of professional housekeeping. If you were able to delegate tasks to like a team of assistants, is there one particular arena of your work where you would kind of nosedive and sort of try because you feel something in like your tummy of tummies says, oh, if only I could go full bore into this one particular aspect, I could really be something significant. That's a great question. Yeah, I think that like my whole life I've worked in social media and digital marketing, but I very much 
like wish that I had an assistant because that would make my life a lot easier. So I've always done everything myself. But it's funny that you say that because I was thinking about that today because I also have a full-time job in addition to the podcast that I wish I had more time to focus on the podcast to really be like specialized in the podcast, if that makes sense. Because I'm spread really thin in general. So it's a little bit difficult to sort of have that specialty. But when it comes to my work, I'm definitely very specialized in digital marketing and social media. But you, but you, you, you've mentioned that like your dream when you were younger was to become the editor in chief of Vogue. And um, yes. we had a misunderstanding at one point uh, last week. I had made it, one of like my heroes is the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, David Remnick, and he's been the editor-in-chief for like 20 years. And I had made a pitch to him and he like answered me last week and he rejected it. But I was like, well, it's a, that's a good failure. That's a, that's a lofty failure to have. And just a lofty failure. But do you feel like, do you look back on that ambition that you once had of being the editor-in-chief of Vogue and think like, okay, that was adolescent, that's not really who I was, or has that just kind of transmuted into what you want to do with the podcast? Who I was at that point when I wanted to be the editor-in-chief of Vogue is completely different than who I am now. So I think that at the time, you know, the world was very different. Social media was not a profession. Influencers was, it wasn't a thing to be an influencer. So if you went to fashion school, which is what I did, you either worked at a fashion house with like a, like a label or you worked at a magazine and you either wrote for the magazine or you did advertising, marketing and sales. So when I graduated, everything was really changing from print to digital. So it was sort of this like whole new landscape that nobody had explored before. And I, it was so hard for me to get a job anywhere just because magazines were folding, you know, e-commerce was coming out. So fashion companies were going under. So it was a very weird time for me to graduate and try and find a job. So looking back, yes, of course, I wish I could have like lived out my dream of being Anna Wintour, but I truly believe that everything happens for a reason and happens the way that it's supposed to. But um, it is it is funny to look back do, at that. Do, and do you think because you're talking about sort of the newsroom and that that exodus from print to um, digital, do you feel like your conception of that fantasy of being the editor in chief of Vogue, is it kind of glued to a 1998 world? or 2002 world where magazines were a thing? Like, once there were no longer any newsstands, did that kind of take the thunder out of your, out of that ambition? I think I tried really hard to stay in New York, and I interviewed anywhere that would give me an interview. I interviewed at, like, Lucky Magazine, which doesn't exist anymore. I interviewed at magazine sales departments for different companies, and I think that more and more I realized that it was less of a failure and more of like a redirection of my life that it wasn't supposed to go in that direction. Like you can want many things in your life, but that doesn't mean that that's what's best for you. So I think that I really wanted it because I was so obsessed with fashion and so obsessed with Vogue because it was such like the pinnacle, the epitome of fashion that I, I tried really hard to stay in New York. And then when I ended up not staying there and moving back to Miami, my life completely changed and the direction of my life completely changed. Yeah. How old are you? 27. 
Oh shit, fire. I thought you were like in your fucking 30. Okay, one of my okay, I'm having like a <laughs> I'm having like an ongoing calamity about turning 30. Not that I'm really having a life crisis, but just I feel like all these pressures that I should be having a life crisis. So, I'm just I keep thinking of things in terms of this arbitrary checkpoint of turning 30. So, one of the things I told myself as I was reaching the end of my 20s and a certain like professional door started closing is that like telling stories and communicating and thinking out loud and just kind of trying to be myself on a microphone or on a on a page is like the thing that I wanted to do, and um, it's grievously irresponsible to be so open on these on these platforms. But my attitude at the moment is like, let me go ahead. Right now, I'm a bartender, so let me go ahead and be a bartender just so I can keep this roof over my head at, while I do my creative thing and do the storytelling business. Not only that, let me learn to try to like find the beauty in hospitality and bartending and kind of be in my moment while I'm there. And so, and also reconciling myself to the reality that the rest of my life might be this. It might be bartending and a little bit of writing and podcasting on the side with a small audience, whatever. Um, and that's fine, so long as my needs are met and I'm enjoying myself. And um, this is this is part of what made for a strange experience listening to your podcast is that your guests are largely in our age range, late twenties, early thirties, and a lot of them are very ambitious, clearly, and they're very accomplished, but they all you as well seem to have like reconciled they seem to have reconciled themselves to the limitations of what they can do in 24 hours they've reconciled themselves to the parts of their work that aren't glamorous to the fact that there's actually a lot of spreadsheets and drudgery involved in being a publicist for instance or a journalist and um i'm wondering about the concessions that you have made now you're 27 where it's like okay my life is not going to be what i thought it was at 18 19 20 but that's okay. Like, I imagine you realizing, like, I'm not going, as you said in that podcast, Anna Winter is going to be carried out of that office in a box. Um, <laughs> you Just like, she's going to do it till she dies, as you said. Like, she's going to yeah, do that it's forever. it's true. Um, mm-hmm. But, like, I remember every now and then I'll think, like, fuck, if, if my 16-year-old self could see what I was doing now, he would be mortified. I have rerouted so many times in my life. I can't even begin to explain to you how many times I was like, after that, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And like I said, life has a very weird way of redirecting you into places, rooms, situations, jobs that you never expected yourself to be in, but were for your highest good. For example, I never thought that I would work for a spirits company. It's just, it's just something that never crossed my mind because I was so into the music industry, the fashion industry and creative realms. And when I got this opportunity and I look back at when I was hired two years ago to now, I have grown so much in that, in those two years, professionally, personally, maturity level, like it was the best thing that could have happened to me. And if you would have asked me that before I did it, I would have been like, that's random. I never thought of doing that. But I have been able to get to the next level of who I'm supposed to be through these endeavors. So I never really look at it as like a failure or like, oh, I thought I was going to do this, but I'm doing something else. It's more of like, I trust in the timing of the universe. I trust in the fact that everything happens the way that it's supposed to. And I work my ass off to make sure that I get to where I need to be. If you work hard and you're a good person and you have a clear vision of what you want and you're nice to people and you don't burn any bridges, you could really do whatever you want in life. Okay, I'm gonna challenge that. What you said about, (laughs) you can do whatever you want in life. And you mentioned the thing about not burning bridges. And that was actually, 
a remark that you had made in a podcast and it was the grounds on which I initially reached out to you because I wanted to have a conversation about that concept. You talked about not burning bridges. Like you want to always be on good terms with the, the people with whom you've worked no matter what. Um, because of if that's going to be the case, then you can't use a platform like podcasting to rustle feathers. And you have to be very mindful of what you're talking about, what you're saying. You, but you also mentioned in a recent podcast that you're just naturally very private. Um, and I was thinking one of the things that I find so liberating about resigning myself to the likelihood that I might for the rest of my life just be a very chatty bartender is that <laughs> I know I'm never going to run for mayor. I know I'm never going to run for an austere public position so that I can do a podcast about a one night stand or a time when I got very drunk and not have to worry about social ramifications because I'm a bartender. <laughs> um, and I'm wondering, are there topics or experiences on which you think you would be more open more conversant in podcasting were it not for the fact that you do endeavor to not rustle feathers. You do have a professional public persona of which you have to be mindful. Do you feel like this interest in maintaining every bridge inhibits you verbally? One thing I've learned in working all the in all of these industries is that your reputation is the most important thing. So I think it's not about acting a certain way to keep those bridges. It's more about just being a good person. Yes, there have been so many times where I've been like super annoyed and not wanting to be in the same room as someone, but I'm a professional and I'm gonna just put my feelings aside for the greater good of whatever my job is. And I take my career very seriously. I think that it's less about like how I portray myself publicly and more about like what I feel comfortable with to be extra protective of my family, my relationships, things like that. I, do, I think it's more about like what's comfortable for me. If I didn't have a podcast and I didn't work for Bacardi or Grey Goose, I still think that I would be the same way. Just because you're not, not, there's nothing cagey or reserved, conspicuously reserved about your demeanor in the podcast. It's just that but having a, I was re I was watching a documentary about like old time wrestlers from like the '90s because I, when I was a kid, I loved professional wrestling, and one of those wrestlers was like, <clears throat> looking back on my career, I'm so grateful that Twitter didn't exist because I'm so temperamental and I would have ruined my career. Yeah, I'm definitely, I'm definitely mindful of everything that I put out. I think that it all stems from like wanting to protect and cherish my personal life. I'm not really one to like tweet because I, I just always thought from when I was young that. Whatever you put on the internet, you have to be okay with it being there forever. Someone had said a quote to me when I was really young that was like, you have to be okay with like your, when I was super young, like your parents seeing everything that you're doing or like your boss seeing everything that you're doing. And I have noticed that I'll meet people and they'll be like, oh my God, you're like so chill and you're so like easy going. And they didn't think that I was like that because I had like a very pro professional type of brand on my Instagram. Like I'm very, I love to have fun. I love to hang out with my friends. I love to go out. I love to do stuff like that. And I think that there is like a little bit of a disconnect where I need to show a little bit more of my personality. And that's something that I'm actually like thinking about for my Instagram, like how can I do that? And I'm trying to incorporate like more video into my podcast so people can actually see me and see the person behind the voice. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of like in that phase right now, like trying to figure out how to express myself and have people know who I am a little bit more on like a deeper level. 
because I feel like there are so many layers to me. And I think that it's like a process of me having this like corporate job in a global environment where it's really important for me to carry myself a certain way. And then also like who I am when I'm with my friends, it's still the same person, but it's just different sides of me, if that makes sense. It, yeah, it does. It does make sense. Um, and I've noticed that makes more sense as to why your podcast format is, is more conversational. You bring other people in, you ask them about yourself, about themselves. You posit things about yourself that illuminate what they're talking about. And you get onto certain themes and topics. Whereas with me, I, 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 um, I feel like because I haven't had any radical life experiences, I'm not, I have never really been in the sexy trenches of sort of music or fashion <laughs> as you have been. It's not that so, sexy, by the way, just oh, no industry is sexy. It's just, but yeah. there are stories I imagine and like, like stories that you know would be riveting for an audience, but you have to keep them to yourself because it professional, whatever. <laughs> but, um, you have I, no idea. I would, well, from what you've talked about, the fucking all nighters at music studios, uh, when they were recording. Oh my God. That's the tip of the iceberg. There's just like <laughs> so many stories that I just like, I think I protect my my reputation the most because I've been in situations where I worked for people who didn't care about their reputation and me working for them made me look bad. You know, there's situations like that I that I think I'm a little scarred from that I like to present myself in the best light possible professionally because I take my career so seriously and I the visions and dreams that I have for myself are so big that in order for me to like get there, I wanna make sure that like people know that I'm a good person and that I work hard and I do all of these things. But um, I don't believe in like throwing people under the bus or right. like saying these crazy stories because it could, it could actually like damage someone. And I think that I'm like a little too empathetic for their sake to do that, if that makes sense. No, it That's totally- That's the cancer in me. That what, which is what, so mindful of other people's boundaries. Just and stuff. like very empathetic. And I, I always like, my friends always tell me that I'm like, I always can look at the other side of things. I'm, I'm very empathetic and I wouldn't want like someone to say like something like that about me. Right. I, I, I feel that too. And it's sometimes paralyzing because then I can't make social decisions or I can't like, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't just appoint responsibility to some I, there's a, a novelist named Martin Amos who was talking about like their their empathy there is a there is like a negative point beyond which you can take your empathy because because if you're too empathetic you end up sort of exonerating everyone of their choices um, but no see see it's empathetic to a degree right, right I think right, that right, right. everybody needs to like <laughs> own their shit <laughs> and that's what that's what that's what comes to mind when you would talk about like never burning a bridge because I, I I I what still haunts me is instances where an employer was abusive or exploitative and I had a tickle in the back of my head telling me this was wrong and I maintained my poise and maybe 30 years down the line when I'm just a more resoundingly dignified adult I'll be like, oh, I'm glad I conducted myself that way. But right now, in my more visceral, maybe, like, young person-ishness, I'm like, I, I should have told that guy to go fuck himself. I feel, I still feel bad that he walked away from that situation feeling like I didn't know what was going on. I have been there, 100%. And I think that there are many situations where I would kick myself, you know, six months, a year later, like, oh, why did I handle things that way? Like, why didn't I just say how I felt? Why didn't I just stand up for myself? And I think that like, 
holding ourselves to a standard of being perfect and knowing what to do all the time, you don't learn in situations like that. The only reason that I learned to stand up for myself is because I didn't at one point and I felt that after. So I vowed okay. after to, to stand up for myself. Don't get me wrong. There are people that I no longer communicate with because of situations like that. And, you know, maybe I've cut them off for my life, but I don't think that that's the same as burning bridges. I think that burning bridges is like doing something disrespectfully to someone that affects your reputation and what people think of you. There okay. have been friendships that I've ended and coworker friendships that I've ended because of how they treated me. But um, it's never like burning bridges, you know, like doing something crazy that someone hears about and they're like, oh, we're not gonna hire her because I heard about that or because that's her breath, oh, or, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. That's sort of like what I meant with that. I definitely believe in standing up for yourself. And I think that there were many years, especially in my past life of working in fashion, where I did not stand up for myself. Like when I was working at BCBG's corporate office in New York, I was 18 years old. I just moved to New York. I had no clue what I was doing. And um, I was an intern for Hervé Leger, which were like these super fancy bandage dresses that um, were hot at the moment and i was the only intern so there was a lot of pressure on me and i worked in the sales and marketing department and there was like this binder that was like the holy grail binder of all of the sales that we got from huge corporations like bloomingdale's to carry certain dresses or you know other things like that and my my boss my immediate boss forgot to put one of the invoices in the binder and she blamed it on me. This is like a week into my internship and I'm like wide-eyed, have no idea what's going on. So the director of sales brings me into her office and I'm like, yes. And she threatened to fire me and told me that because I didn't put the piece of paper back into the binder, I'm not qualified to be an intern because it's a simple task and I should have known to do that. And I was like, wait, but I didn't do that. Obviously, she believed my boss over me and told me that if I didn't get my shit together, then I was going to be fired. At FIT, where I went to college, if you got fired from your internship, uh, you failed your internship class because you had to take a class along with it. You, you got an F. There was no like redoing it. It damages your GPA for a really long time. And I started freaking out because I was like, I didn't do this. I tried to stand up for myself. It didn't work out. She threatened to fire me. If I get fired, I fail my class, I my parents are going to kill me. And I just had no idea what to do. So I like went into the bathroom and cried for like 10 minutes because I was so overwhelmed. And I think that there are just situations where like even if you stand up for yourself, it's it still might not work out the way that you want it to. I, I wish I did things differently. And I wish I could have, you know, should have, could have, would have said this, done this. But you only get that in hindsight. You only get that like a year later after you go through other experiences to be like, oh my God, she totally treated me like shit. I should have said something. I should have like, you know, told her again that I didn't do it. And I think that being in situations like that, that were so cutthroat at such a young age, just like really affected me and affected how I carry myself like in a professional environment. Do you think she kind of knew she was going overboard and she was just kind of using you as a punching bag? Like... 
It, like, you know, sometimes oh, you're being maybe. yelled at by someone and you're like, okay, I know you're not totally You're like, yelling. you're having a bad day. <laughs> yeah. This is not about what you're yelling at me about. Um, um, I don't know. I think it was like New York City in 2012 in the fashion industry and you had to claw your way to the top because there was no social media. You can't be like an influencer and someone finds out about you. People find out about you because of word of mouth. Right. So I, I think like, yeah, maybe she was pissed that day and she didn't meet her deadline or whatever it was, but she, you know, that didn't matter. I was disposable to her. I'm just a little intern and she's the director of sales. You know, it's it was like a very crazy thing. Yeah, and that like scarred me. It was like one of those Devil Wears Prada things where you're like, getting yelled at and I'm like, holy shit, what just happened? And then I went into the bathroom and started crying and then I came back out and I just was like, okay, well, I don't really have another option. I have to get back to work. (laughs) (laughs) And I was legit 18. Oh my God. Well, that's a fucking key part of the story to to have left out. That makes more sense that at 18, you're not going to like puff your chest out. I I was just like shook at the whole thing that I was sitting in her office. Like, what? What did I do? It's like my first week on the job. I I went on a date. I guess it was way over a year ago because it was pre-COVID. But um, with a lawyer and she was talking about her tenure at like this new job. Well, it's not new. It just new-ish at this um, law firm. And she said it was great because she was making a ton of money. Um, like more than she had ever fathomed that she would be earning at 30 or 31, whatever she was. And... Um, but she said for her first, like, 30, 40 days on the job, every single day she would go to the bathroom and cry. And when she was in the bathroom crying, women would walk by the stall and rap gently and knowingly. Like, they didn't ask her what was wrong. They were all just Are like, Are you sure she didn't okay. work in fashion? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like she, she could have. But um, she was saying, like, all of the women, it was, like, total solidarity. Everyone knew that these are just the growing pains. And I was, I was like, this sound like pretty fucking fausty and horrible growing pains. And she was like, but she ended up illustrating without revealing numbers and it wasn't necessary that she do so. Oh, this was, Bernie Sanders was still in the race. And she was like, I take great oh, this pride. Is, this was recent. Yeah. And like she, a year ago. Uh-huh. A little over. And she was like, like, I take great pride in the fact that I own my own place at the age of 30 and I can, I just wrote like a substantive check to the Bernie Sanders campaign, and that makes me feel like a good citizen and shit. And she's like, I feel like the money that I earn, it's not just like, fuck you, woohoo money. It it allows me to become a person that I want to be. And I will endure mm. the indignity of that, mm. of the shit that goes on in the office so that I can be the good Democrat, the homeowner, the good neighbor, the sort of philanthropist. Which brings me, the subject of money, brings me to another topic, another one of the pre-prepared questions. So two of my closest friends happened to be married. They were telling me about how they'd been con- like crunching numbers to come up with um, what the number that is their fuck you dollar. And the fuck, you, <laughs> the fuck you dollar is the amount that once you have it, you say fuck you to all the things that you don't enjoy, all the things that you've only kept in your life mm-hmm. as fiscal necessity. And for them, it's the point at which they're going to abscond to Europe because he has... Because of the the point at which his grandfather came here into Ellis Island, he can still go and become a citizen in Italy, and she, as his wife, can join. Um, Now, you love work, and I think this is one of the things that you and I have in common, the feverishness of work. And so I've gathered from your... I cannot fathom you hitting it big at 50 and then sitting, like, lounging beside a pool for 40 years. Um, So I'm wondering, do you have a fuck you dollar amount? I'm not asking what the dollar amount is. And... 
what would change in your life if you hit it? Hypothetically, if you had one. This may be the best question I've ever asked. <laughs> I've been asked. Um, I never thought about a fuck you dollar, but now I probably should. I, I definitely could not be someone who retires and does nothing. I think that I have this like issue with standing still. It's my biggest fear. Even when I'm old and gray, I don't want to just chill. I feel like I have this sort of like insatiable desire and fire inside of me that I will forever keep going because that's just how I am. I just like thrive off of reaching a goal or progressing or doing anything like that. Um, I think that there will probably come a point in my life where I decide that I don't want to do the things that don't bring me full fulfillment because I don't have to do them anymore because I reached a certain amount, you know, whatever that amount is, which I now have to think about. There definitely will be a point in time where I like reshift my priorities and maybe work a little bit less and focus on the things that bring me more joy. As terrible as COVID and quarantine has been, I think that I have like grown tremendously because I've actually put the work in to figure out what makes me happy. And I think that once you do that, then you can figure out what your fuck you dollar is. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good approach. I, I, I've, I've been thinking, yeah, that my, my experience in, in the pandemic has been prosperous, like in, internally. And um, I think it's going to be a sticky topic that we navigate very delicately at dinner parties for the rest of our lives. Like who prospered during the pandemic and are they a bad person for having prospered? Um, I'll tell you, you the person who pros prospered the most, and that's Jeff Bezos. So. <laughs> oh, that's true. I thought you were going to say Fauci. Um, oh, Fauci. No, I feel bad for not him. Not in terms of prosperity. Oh, my God. Yeah, that New York Times interview after Trump left office where he was ta talking about the extent. He was like, which... I finally can talk again. I just yeah. was like, ugh. Did you see the part where he talked about the envelope full of powder that he got? Oh, my God. I saw that. That was horrifying. I was like, <clears throat> who would ever want to hurt this like delicate young man. That's the thing. He looks. He's he's, he's so he's boyish. He's so tiny. I was dying over his in style cover. Like, oh, I love dying that. Over and it. I wanted to frame it <laughs> with his wife poolside, right? Yeah, it was just him uh, poolside. Oh, I thought. Cover, oh, yeah. on the in, inside the in profile in, picture. His wife. So oh, you were talking about you're talking about never really wanting to relent, never wanting to stop working, and I feel the exact same way. And I'm wondering because I think you and I might have shared some of this. Do you ever find yourself downplaying your workaholism or do you ever find yourself kind of anxiously explaining it away because I think there's the woman's experience of being grilled at this age for why aren't you settling down why don't you have kids whatever which I have not experienced no one says to me Alex why aren't you married people who know me are like okay he's I understand I why he's <laughs> but do you ever feel like you have to explain yourself or do you downplay it sometimes I have to explain myself every single Sunday when I go to my parents' oh, house for right. dinner. How many siblings claim... do you have? What? How many siblings do you have? Three. Okay. I'm the oldest girl, though. So I have an older brother and two younger sisters. Okay. And my youngest sister is 19, so she's in a very different phase of her life than I am. And my parents, you know, growing up, it's so funny. They were like, don't have kids until you're 40. Don't even get married. You don't need that stress. Now, all of a sudden, my best friend has a baby. I go to my parents' house. They're like, so I really would love to be a grandparent. <laughs> a 
I get that too. Actually. I'm like, that's so great for you. Do you not remember like all of the years that you told me to not even think about dating? It's so funny how things change, but yeah, for sure. I think that I have to constantly explain myself, especially being a Jewish woman and growing up in a Jewish community and environment where all of my friends that I grew up with are married mothers. I think that that's something that um, has been really funny to experience at my age because I still feel really young. Like I feel like 27 is so young. And if I ended up with the person that I was with when I was 25, like I'd be pissed right now. You know, growing up in a Jewish community is really different than growing up anywhere else because you do have these societal pressures of settling down and having babies by a certain age. And don't get me wrong, I definitely want all of that for my future, but I am comfortable enough in my skin to know that like this is my journey in my life and I'm I have to go to sleep with myself every night and be happy with, you know, the choices that I make. And I think that um, I personally don't feel any pressure to to do that for myself because I don't feel like that's what I want right now. Well, and, and apart from the gendered aspect of that question, do you just have friends who sort of twist your ear about like smell the roses, Blair, slow down? It's funny because I. I don't think so. Like, I think my friends are just so used to me being a hustler, like my entire life that they're just like, oh, yeah, that's Blair. Like, of course, Blair is like working her ass off and doing stuff like I did that when I was washing cars in my neighborhood when I was five. Like, it's it's kind of like they know that I'm not meant to take the path expected. Okay. so I think that. It's, it's a weird position to be in because I feel like I've grown to really know myself and the things that I want, and it's different than what other people want from me. But I'm okay with that. These are really good questions. I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. Um, you have an insider's perspective on things, and you've lived in different places. I feel like um, having not really had an intimate experience in a profession, in a, in a career or whatever, I feel like when I get onto the podcast or when I'm writing a blog post or anything, it's uh, like all I have are my secrets. Like I have nothing interesting to share, nothing like inherently informative. Your secrets are interesting. Uh, yeah, that's that's the thing. It's like that's what I have and so I will share my secrets. And um, are you finding now, 17 episodes into the podcast, that it's making you more open than you were as you approached because you were just talking with your friend is it Ben who was interviewing you last week? Gil. Gil. You were talking about just being inherently private and yet you are so receptive to being asked these questions and I would think I certainly found this to be the case after a certain amount of successful podcasting which is just to say like podcasting where you're content with the final product you start realizing like oh I, I'm I'm, I'm competent at expressing myself. I enjoy expressing myself. And is it making you think like, okay, you know what? I am going to open the lid on this jar of intimacy and I'm going to reveal these, 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 I'm going to let these little secret butterflies fly <laughs> just because um, it will enrich my product. And yes, it'll jeopardize me. Um, it'll compromise the privacy that I so value, but it'll, it'll be good for my material. I definitely feel more comfortable now expressing myself. The first episode of the podcast, I recorded like 17 times. Really? Because I was so self-conscious about, am I doing this right? I'm a perfectionist. I want everything to be perfect. I want it to sound good, look good, might have my Instagram down packed. And I realized that 
you know, everything changes, everything evolves, everything grows. This is not like you put it out into the universe and it's perfect immediately. Like no brand is like that, you know, like even Coca-Cola has changed its logo. I think that I just haven't really had the platform or the guest or the interview where I'm able to express myself because I feel like I'm a very open person, even though I'm private. Like if someone asks me something, I always try, I'm very honest. I'm very like, I'm an open book, but I think that it, it takes someone to ask me these things and for me to put myself in that position where like I wouldn't willingly like go on the podcast and talk about a crazy experience that I had. But maybe now I need to. <laughs> I don't know. I'm very interested. It was interesting to watch the trajectory of the podcast. And I feel like something culminated in that conversation that you had with your sister, where you were talking about going to a Catholic school as one of three Jewish students. Um, oh, my God. Yeah, the one with my <laughs> sister, I felt like as I was listening to it and editing it, I'm like, I said too much. I said, too really? Much. I need to delete. I need to delete it. I shouldn't have talked about like the kid that threw quarters at me and I shouldn't have done all this stuff. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to put it out there because this is, this happened. Like this was real. Right. This is a part of my life journey. And it was funny because when my sister interviewed me, I had no idea what her questions were going to be. And she knows me better than anyone, obviously. And she's my youngest sister. So she's 19 and I'm 27. There's a huge age gap. And it was interesting to see like what she wanted to know or what she wanted me to talk about. She was like, Nobody knows that you went to a Catholic high school. Like, I'm going to bring that up. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to do that. And then as she was asking me, I was like, wait, that's so crazy. There's so many layers that I haven't showed shown people. And that is actually like one of my, my highest, uh, most listened to episodes is with my sister because, and I get a lot of people saying that like, oh, you felt really comfortable and you showed like a different side of yourself and all these different things. And I think that like, I'm in this exploratory phase of my podcast where I was so gung-ho about like, I need to only interview creatives who do X, Y, and Z and make it really professional. And the more I listen to other podcasts, I'm like, I actually love podcasts that are so informal. They're talking about random shit. And I kind of want to like explore that a little more. So I've been very like, fluid in my approach to what my episodes are about now and i try i try to just provide value to people whether it's to inspire someone listening to give them business advice or life advice I, i'm i'm putting less pressure on myself to be a certain way professionally and to just like go into the studio and see what happens and start interviewing people that maybe don't work in a creative field but maybe they can provide value to someone in the audience okay I was wondering about that and, and, and your <clears throat> opting now to record in a studio as opposed to your apartment. And um, I was I, I had flirted with that idea a while ago, but I was like, oh, my God, my, 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 I feel like my podcast is such a shit show. It would be like Shrek in a tuxedo. <laughs> like, why do I need <laughs> terrific sound quality? Um, but yours is more mannered and it is more streamlined conversation. So did you feel much different doing the, the you've now done two shows in the studio. Did it was a general, different feeling? Did it? Because you weren't totally. looking at levels and shit, because you didn't have the mechanics on your mind, do you feel like you gave a better performance? 100%. I think that at first I was interviewing a lot of my friends. So I didn't care if my friends came over and they were in my apartment and oh, whatever. Right. But, I, but I felt like after a while, if I really wanted the podcast to grow and I wanted to get like well-respected professionals, 
it's not really a good look that they're chilling in my apartment and like, you know, maybe I have technical difficulties or something happens or whatever, whatever. So I found HGAP Studios, which is a local studio in Midtown in Miami, and my friend owns it. And she was telling me, oh, we have a podcast room. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have a podcast room. I went to go see it and I'm like, this is it. I need to bring this to the next level. I need to, you know, not worry. Like I literally bring a micro SD card. I put it into the roadcaster, which is like the equipment. I push a button and I start recording. And then I take, I take that, I plug it into my computer and I open it in GarageBand. It is the easiest thing ever. And it made me realize that I was like really making it difficult for myself. Like the things that I was doing, I felt more comfortable. It's not my space. It's not my ha- my home. I felt like I didn't have to worry about maybe the mic's not working and not recording and I'm stressing out about that underneath me having to ask the questions. I felt more comfortable. I felt like it was more professional. I felt like they have like studio lighting and all these different things where um, I just dropped an episode today with uh, Marcel from Ledoux and the Broken, which is this amazing artist who's from Miami. And I recorded the interview, I'm gonna drop a video on Friday, of the entire video. And I was able to just like put that in the studio. They have all the lighting, push a button on my iPhone and record like a really high quality video. So I think that having all of these elements allowed me to really like not focus on the on the questions that I had written and more on like the conversation and like what what value I can bring to people. That does sound liberating, actually. It's so liberating. Oh, my God. You don't even know, know, like, the issues that I had. Like, one time I had someone come over, and I didn't know them. It was, like, a friend of a friend. And I, like, got a new mic. I have my red mic, but I got another one. And I searched everywhere for the same red mic that's discontinued because they don't make it anymore. And it was on eBay, and it was a whole thing to get it. I get it. I plug it in. It doesn't work. I'm like, oh my god! Like she's about to be here in five minutes. We had to record the entire interview on one mic. But it does I have that to be like, setting, hey. right? It does have that setting, what? right, for uh, the two-way. Yeah, it just like wasn't working. Oh like I god. knew how to set it up. I did it all in advance. Like I did everything, and it's like we spent 15 minutes waiting in my apartment trying to figure it out, and it just like it was hassle I didn't need. It didn't look professional. I just was like over it. And you want to just make it easy. Like, this is supposed to be something that's fun for me. Right. That is, like, you know, energizing for me. And I, I want to enjoy the process and just make it as easy as possible. Okay. That makes sense. I, I, I don't aspire to anything like professionalism. I, I want it to be messy and stuff. <laughs> as, as, as intimate as possible. It's and really I, just easy for me. I understand that. Yeah, totally. Because when you do aspire toward professionalism, there is a clearly delineated set of parameters within which you operate. You ask these sorts of questions. You don't You don't push those kinds of wounds. Are you interested in that kind of, like, prying? Do you see yourself as ever becoming the sort of interviewer who prods the bear, who asks, picks at the wound? Or do you just kind of want to keep it on the, on the level, provide sort of professional value? I definitely see myself growing my podcast and becoming like a well-respected interview that I'm able to bring interviewer where I'm able to branch out and, you know, like host red carpets or like interview artists that I admire and sort of be like that go-to person uh, in the future. But I think that it's, it's less about like picking wounds and like, I cared less about the gossip and more about like the real story. So I think that focusing on, 
the real story of someone's life and how someone listening can relate to that and know that they're not alone. That's what I hope to bring to the table. Well, that's a terrific note to end on. Now we've reached the end of the hour. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining. Do you have anything that you want to promote? Do you, I guess, just your podcast? Do you want to say anything to point people towards it? Yes. I. You can find me on Instagram at The Blair List. I drop a new episode every single Wednesday at 5 p.m. on Spotify, Apple Music, anywhere you can find a podcast. Um, hit me up in the DMs once you listen. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear if there's any topics that you want me to cover. And I'm just grateful for this opportunity. These were amazing questions. I'm genuinely impressed. Nope. listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll give the show a review at Apple Podcasts. If you'd like more content from Thousand Movie Project, you can check out the back catalog of episodes, or you can go read daily blog posts, which basically comprise my diary, at thousandmovieproject.com. You can also find a Thousand Movie Project ebook called My Three Repugnant Children at amazon.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next time.